You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. Hey, y'all. Super glad to be here with you. Uh, Jordan asked a question at the earlier meeting about birds, and I got super excited and asked me about that. But I also want to set the stage for like what we're accomplishing when we do this. We, we really do think that dialogue keeps us connected and protects our gravity. Like, it's, the, it's this conversation that holds us together. Like, we're, we're building something right now. Something's happening. We're making something that might help someone, you know, three blocks that way, like, make it into this community and a relationship with Jesus. Like, I, I really do think we're sending something out. And uh, it's so much better than the alternative that everyone has to agree with me. Because I'm the pastor. Um, that's, the, that's the other way to like make a, a group, is to say, this is what we think, and I'm the best articular, articulator of it. <laughs> did, did that sound dirty or something for a sec? No, it's not. Yeah, because what you didn't articulate. You I got it. Just felt really, just felt, yeah, OK. I'm going to say other funny things on purpose. No, yeah, like the alternative is that, that some, some dude on a microphone, yeah, usually a dude, is making the fence around the edge of a community and then there's a line about who can be in or out about whether you agree with me or not. And agreeing with me is great. I, actually, churches that work like that, it, it, sometimes it can, like, everyone here is cringing, Bethany especially, um, but uh, no, just, she's, her face is the most cringy, you know, I didn't, yeah. No, not in general. Oh, my gosh. Like, I keep looking from Bethany to Danielle, and Danielle's like, why is he saying that? Um, no, I mean, I was looking at her, and she's cringing because, but actually, it can feel good to, like, have the solid answers. Like, it can feel really good to, like, that guy knows stuff, and I want to know the things that he knows, and I want to say the things that he says. Uh, we're doing it different. That, that, I, I don't want to, like I'm saying, I don't want to totally poo-poo that way of being. I don't think it works enough. I don't think it's inclusive enough for the 21st century, but uh, I, I can say I understand the appeal. I don't want to do it though. And, and to do the alternative, we actually have to have this conversation. We actually need to talk and we need to make sure that this dialogue is happening. And it's not just some hierarchical de- deconstruction. It's actually a construction of a body of love and there's no other way to do it but to talk a lot. So let's do it here in the Sunday meeting. Ask me anything. Yes, make it. So, John Yerchi is this congregation's pastor. Why do the pastors rotate? Like, why is it important that you know us and we know you? I do a lot of work for you. <laughs> for you specifically, Megan, but for all of you, the way that the pastor's team works is uh, a lot of the work that we do, we, we do together. We're trying to build something that's bigger than each of our congregations. And it'd be silly if we weren't because our, our plan for multiplying churches and congregations, it, it's very, um, it's very, uh, let's, uh, practically it's very expensive for, for, um, for a church of our size uh, to have four pastors. Uh, but we really want it, we want to have this a face-to-face thing where we can do something like this and it's not totally untenable, you know? That like something like this isn't happening on a jumbo screen. It, would, it just wouldn't work. 
Um, so we wanna have this intimate congregation of about 200 people, but we also wanna have it all over the Delaware River watershed, up and down, you know, the millions of people that live there. Uh, and so working together as a pastor's team to justify our, um, you know, the amount of people on the team we work together. Also different giftings, we're able to, to raise up pastors together um, and do work like, so that, like I am your pastor. Um, not just, and it's not just like sleight of hand. Like I really do hours of work for this congregation uh, because we work together to uh, all of our stuff is in common. Like you pay my salary too. Um, it's all one. And I think that's really great because it breaks down all kinds of boundaries. Um, but it's also a different way of working. It actually undoes what I was kind of lampooning there at the beginning about the man on the microphone with all the answers. We have a team. Our team has to work on even having mutuality. We talk all the time too. I think if I went, do phones tell you how long you talk to one person? Do they like do the math for you? Because if it were Johnny and me, it would be an obscene number on the phone. Um, so I, I love that. I love that we, that we work together. But the reason that I'm here is, yeah, I'm, I, I'm your pastor, and we want to demonstrate that unity uh, because it doesn't make sense if we're not actually together. Like, doing it the way we do it, if we weren't actually together and actually I wasn't actually your pastor, it would just be a waste of money. You know, it would be, it would be a waste of, of strategy. It wouldn't be everything. All, like, all the hard work that it takes to stay together, especially for um, my congregation and your congregation on different in different states, on different sides of a river, different sides of cultural divides. If, that, if we weren't actually together and it was just like lip service, uh, like a brand that is able to be exported uh, and wasn't something face-to-face, -face, um, just, yeah, let's do it separately. You know, let's split up. Like many churches do that have a model similar to ours. Eventually, the, the figurehead that holds them together retires and now... They're just going to atomize and eventually dissolve, probably. We're going for something longer term than that. We're going for something bigger and, and uh, better. Heather. As a pastor's kid, did you consider other traditions or churches other Y'all know that I'm a pastor's kid? Uh, Rod White is the founder uh, of Circle of Hope with a team of people back in 1996. I'm his son, and um, I, I did with Mennonite Central Committee. I went and lived with another church family. I was like the gringo um, sheepdog of a Mexican church planting family. <laughs> I like just went everywhere they went, you know, like this big enthusiastic person that doesn't understand everything that's happening. Um, and lived there for a year with SALT, which is serving learning together. And it was there in that church, Pueblo and Transformacion, that I kind of received my, my call from Jesus to be a pastor. It took getting out of my, my dad's shadow to kind of get some clarity about whether or not even the church was my calling. And, and so that was the consideration. But I came right back to Circle of Hope when I, came back, when I came back from Mexico, pretty enthusiastic about leading. And I've been leading cells. Soon after that, I was a coordinator. And kind of I was the typical kind of homegrown pastor Home, typical in the sense for Circle of Hope. What's your favorite bird and why? Red tail hawk, because it can soar. Other birds can soar. But red tail hawk is my bird. 
Red-tailed hawks are the, are the soaring birds that aren't vultures and are uh, quite common in this area. Vultures are gross, so they, they can't, can't, can't be my favorite. Um, if you like vultures, we're not on the same team, sorry. Um, Red-tailed, what's that? I mean, I like them now because now I, I'm, I'm more into birds, but like when I was choosing my, my bird, it was a red-tailed hawk because it was the common, most common raptor um, that wasn't a turkey vulture around here. Yeah. Um, I should ask this one more material, but what are uh, some of your favorite things about Gwyneth? Gwyneth, my wife? Uh, my favorite things about Gwyneth. Gwyneth is incredibly loyal. Um, just a, a rock, like, just laughable to think that she wouldn't have my back eventually, or like existentially. She's good at like getting my face too, um, and the the safety that of that is is very comfortable because I'm I'm uh, able to receive um, some pretty harsh criticism from her without fear. Uh, and as a uh, person who is organized on the inside as a uh, narcissist, and that's not pejorative. Narcissist is just a, a personality, organizational thing. I don't know, back me up here. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, having, having someone that um, is just so safe, that's able to tell me the truth, she's unique in the world in that way for me. Um, uh, she's also really funny and more goofy than you might know, uh, especially like we, you know, lovers always have their inside jokes and we have a lot of them. I really like to be around her. Greg. Uh, if Circle Folk is organized in this sort of like anti-demagogic way, as you're saying, where it's like the person with the microphone isn't it, uh, why do we have sermons? Well, there's a whole assumption in there. I always say at the beginning of my sermons that, okay, here's what we're doing. Because I'm trying to do something different in a sermon. Because I actually, I never call it a sermon. I call it a message. Um, but, I, but I think it's different because sermon does lean towards that demagoguery that, that, that you're insinuating sermons inherently have. I would object to that insinuation, but I'm not going to have that argument. Because I'm actually just trying to do something different. I don't want to deconstruct sermons. But I want to actually say, when we're having a sermon, this is what I say at most of, of the beginning of my sermon. Let's remind me, okay, this is what we're doing. We're getting our hearts and our minds moving in the same direction because we're practicing listening to God. I've spent the week coming up with some kind of content for us to work with, for us to keep, to, to move with the Bible and with Jesus and with the Holy Spirit right now. In real time, we're going to move together, like down the same path. And the idea is you're going to trust what's coming up so that you can say something back to that, so that so the dialogue can happen. So it's a really long preamble to most of my messages. And then the message itself is just a preamble to the conversation that happens in the meeting and then in the cells beyond. I do think that we need someone, uh, one of the reasons you have a pastor, that's, that's a similar question. Why would you have a pastor then? And I really do think that we need someone that is kind of, that has their eye on the ball all the time. And it's not necessary. It's not like existentially necessary. There are many church traditions that have, have not had uh, formal um, ministerial people. And they've been, some of them have been fairly successful at times.
but I think that in 21st century Philadelphia, uh, where um, you know your employer wants your whole life most of the time, and you have to fight to have to fight to even make it to your cell meeting. Uh, for most of us, the, the the blessing that we give ourselves by having a pastor is that there's someone with their eye on the ball that's reminding us of the mission, that's organizing us to do the mission, that, that that's building these teams and loving the people so that they can keep leading them, that, that, that we pay for that as a strategy. And it's very successful to keep us as a something. And the, the message on Sundays is a place for that person to do that, for the pastor to, to do all of those things, to love the leaders, to fill them up, has been discerning. This is what I think we need to hear from God. And so the, the message, I think, has, is, is, is demagoguery in the way that, that, that you're kind of insinuating. And I know you're not being harsh about it. I'm just kind of making fun a little. Um, uh, when the message is about getting the right answers, having the correct theology, uh, 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 what's that word, exegeting the Bible correctly so we can have all the right answers. And you need to get the right answers with me. If that's the function of the sermon, um, then yeah, it's, it's the kind of bullshit that you're talking about. Um, but, but we're trying to do something different. Not, not that having correct theology or having correct biblical understanding is not a quest of ours. It's just um, it, we don't organize ourselves around it. We organize this, our, ourselves around this dialogue of love that we're having. And so that's what I, I, I like to reframe the message as, as often as possible, is no, we're actually doing something different. It looks the same, um, and that's a convenient kind of trope that our culture has given us that people are kind of ready for. You know, people are still, we're, we're reinventing sermons. You know, TED Talks are incredibly popular. Um, that's a sermon. Every TED Talk is a sermon. Uh, it's, it's inspiring. We want to do something. And so uh, the gift of the pastor is to give um, themselves uh, to the body in service to that, that dialogue of love. And if we're not doing it that way, um, yeah, it'll suck. Martha. Um, I am from Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Boom! Um, you, since you were young, like what, 12 or something? Yeah, four years uh, last month to, mm -hmm. to, to 1121 Hadnav. So how, how is that? Hadnav, Hadden Township. I live on Walnut Ave. I don't even know where I live. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I don't know where I live. Um, so how is, and I, can, I see like crazy, you know, differences in the suburban life and our city life. So like how are you adjusting and how, how do you think the church where you think the church is going mm -hmm. there with such a, it's a, just such a different way to be and do community life mm -hmm. together yeah one of the um, good question. right Albie <laughs> Albie knows about the exact right, same suburbs exact and he lives in Collingswood which is the same town that I live in essentially um, I uh, I was one of the reasons I knew that it was the Holy Spirit telling me to take this position of leadership at our congregation in South Jersey was that I was such a ride or die Philadelphian, and my wife even more so. Um, and you know, this, this attraction to this otherworldly place, you know, 
uh, really gave me the opportunity to be a missionary because I do think that it, that it is culturally different. And it's culturally different in ways that surprised me and that I've, I've run up against. I, I've, I've gotten enough uh, time there and enough confidence with other leaders um, who are more um, dyed-in-the-wool South Jerseyans than I am. Uh, I, they, 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 they told me, like, you, that Philadelphia stink is all over you. <laughs> um, and one of the, one of the um, things that this, is, this has nothing to, it doesn't have any, nothing to do with me, but it's, it, another thing that has changed uh, is uh, the political conversation in our country has drastically changed in the last two years since Donald Trump was elected. And we are more and more atomized and the conversations are less and less helpful and we sort each other out um, so that conversations are futile and the, the divisions are just deepened. Of course, the, no, this is nothing new. But in the place where, in, in, in like 19125, you know, or, or, or Camden, New Jersey, which is a very brown city just like Philadelphia, um, you know, if you look at the, the, the breakdown for folks who voted for Donald Trump and those who voted for Hillary Clinton, and this is just, it doesn't matter about the politics of it, just, it just kind of indicates something about the differences. It's like 90%, 95% blue in Philadelphia. And, you know, but you, everyone knows those 5% of people, you know, and they're, and they're your neighbors that, that, that like um, the, the, the stuff that Donald Trump says. Um, but in South Jersey, it's 60-40. You know, New Jersey's a blue state, but it's 60% blue. And, it's a, and again, I don't really like these political divisions. I don't think they're um, uh, true. I don't, I don't live by them at all. But they do indicate the division of thinking. And, that, and, and they, they, there is a line that, that is getting deeper. So you just run into a lot more people that you disagree with. And uh, I never had that problem living in Philadelphia. Um, I, you know, like running, you know, it's also, it's also if you, especially, you know, I think Collingswood, which is a fairly diverse town where Albie and I live, I think it's 80% uh, white. And that's a good town as far as like diversity goes outside of Camden. You know, Camden is more um, brown and black than Philadelphia is. So, uh, but no one goes to Camden. You know, that, that's one of the, the difficulties of, of the area is Camden is just like, just the God forsaken place. It's certainly forsaken by all the God loving people that live around it. Um, and uh, we live right on the edge of it. 3,800 Marlton Pike is actually one block from uh, Camden. And so, um, figuring out how to deal with that, figuring out how to know and love people that have never had a real relationship with any person of color. Um, and they bring all the assumptions of that problem to their discipleship. Uh, it's tricky. Uh, but uh, it's fun work to try to figure out how to bring the gospel in creative ways and not just live by these political assumptions that I have never really considered. You know, I've, I've had to change a lot and figure out how to love more and have more compassion and figure out how to make an argument for uh, a justice-loving Jesus uh, when partisan politics has co-opted every moral issue. That's of the devil. 
and I'll, I'll tell you that. And if I can, if I can get enough confidence with a person, I'll tell you, I'll tell them that myself, that you have been uh, possessed when you talk about babies in cages as a political partisan issue. And that's just the flashpoint of today. There's all kinds of bogus stuff that gets, and I think, I think that they're just, they, they've just been lied to. And the freedom that Jesus offers is something uh, that they need in, in that realm of their thinking and every other part of their life. Mercy. Purple is my favorite color because I liked it when I was little, but then I got to third grade and it wasn't allowed anymore. Not like by the authorities, but like by the other boys. And so I, at, at some point in my teens, I, uh, I had enough masculinity intact to, sit, to, to go back. And uh, I like reclaiming that. I like telling my boys, I have two boys, that purple is my favorite color and deconstructing that uh, line for them. Number, I don't care. Uh, in, infinity, and it's not a number. We had a big, I just went on this road trip with my, with, my, uh, with my whole family. We went on a two and a half week road trip, drove all the way to Alberta, Canada, and one of the recurring themes in the back seat between my five-year-old and my eight-year-old was whether infinity was a number. It's not. Uh, Wes had a hand up first. I think that surprise is a common element of my discernment about what God is doing. This is like too raw like to get all the details on or get um, total clarity on yet. Like I can't tell the story well enough. But I got called out last week um, and it just really didn't feel good. But uh, it also feels like relief, or the relief is like bubbling up in the wake of the, the, the hurt of being got. Um, so, um, yeah, that, 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 happened, that just happened this week. Um, someone called me out and I was mad. And so that was when I was saying like, no, that's not God, I'm just feeling, like, you're just, a jerk why are you doing this to me um, but then the, the, as the dust settles it's actually bringing fruit it's not like I, it's not like I realized oh I was dead wrong you know it's more like it's more nuanced than that but it seems like I'm like I'm glad that they did so that's the best I got right now not super dramatic sorry is it is it okay to insist that God show up Sure. So the context I'm coming from is my friend's dad is dying of cancer. He's basically six months left to live. He's had health issues for the last two years. My friend has been, always been a very strong believer, but he's been very angry right now. Like, makes sense. But I remember he posted things like, insist that God shows up. It's okay to insist that God shows up. And that was a very interesting statement. Just like, demanding that God show up in some miraculous way. 
feels very presumptuous, but it's in the that does it. Well, I think God tells us to ask for anything we want. And anything we ask for in Jesus' name, he'll give to us. So just kicking the wheels on that, um, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy. I, I do have a story that I want to tell about that. I was a, a hospital chaplain for a couple of years before I was a pastor. And one time I was with a family that their, their loved one was dying and, and then had died. And I had been connected to the family for a day or so. And it was a big family and kind of just wrangling them all in their grief. Just even just traffic control is sometimes what you do when you're the hospital official. And, um, but they wanted their pastor to, to pray. And they kept saying, God has the final word. Like they refused to accept that this woman was dead until their pastor had prayed that she be healed and rise up out of bed. But the pastor was like in another state. Um, and he drove from the other state and got there late in the night and I was still there. And I got the, the remaining family, which was like the daughter and a granddaughter and a sister, got them into this place in Jefferson Hospital. It's in the basement, it's next to the morgue. It's called the Solace Room where people can be with bod dead bodies. And um, he came in in his, you know, there's a tradition where he's wearing a dress to the nines suit and he gets to the body and he prays a long-winded prayer of confidence. Um, and they wait for, you know, half a beat and then he turns and shakes his head and then the grief explodes. And I mean, I didn't understand it at all when it was happening. You know, I was even frustrated that in the middle of the night, this is what my job is. But when the real grief came, after the insistence, um, there's something I can't shake about that faith. They, yeah, they were insisting to the end. They were insisting beyond She was still gone, but they were able to grieve after. It wasn't, it wasn't like some spiritual bypass. Um, it wasn't like this fake story that um, they were making up or something or they were just being ridiculous. Uh, it had power to it that I can't deny, even though the woman didn't rise from the dead. So... Um, I think, that's the, I think that's probably what your friend's talking about. And to demand from God and for God to show up in his anger, which will certainly come when his loved one isn't cured, but maybe they will be. It's, I think, the kind of faith we can have I don't think it's stupid to have that kind of faith at all. Um, it is one of the big part of our practice here at the There's a lot of consciousness that I've noticed um, coming out of the, like, kind of like that 1980s, 1990s, like, white savior, uh, like, global missions that uh, we all can get a lot of experience with remember. And we don't talk about it a lot here because we don't seem to send out people. But just thinking about, like, some of those ideas and, like, lots of, especially young kids and youth groups that go into other countries. Kind of perpetuating a lot of that stuff that can be kind of harmful. Curious about like, your thoughts. We just we don't talk about it much. 
So, like, we don't talk about world missions much, is that what you're saying? Yeah, there's there's a high concentration of people, and you're talking 80s and 90s, kind of when you're when you're growing up, kind of. You know, I remember I remember I was at I was at a traditional church, and they had this kind of mission sending organization that came, and they did like their commercial essentially for this is what you could do this summer. And one of the things was boot camp for your missions trip, and it had like this ropes course, and it was this whole like. Uh, like obstacle course about like getting ready to go tell people about Jesus and I totally wanted to go because I wanted to do the American Ninja stuff you know like I wanted to like climb that cargo ladder like faster than everybody else um, but then we moved to Philadelphia right before I got into youth group and I missed out on all that BS um, I think if I had gone it wouldn't have been terrible um, I think if we acknowledge that this is a uh, life-changing experience for uh, uh, North American kids um, and maybe uh, a relational opportunity for uh, an indigenously operated organization to raise money from people that should be giving them money, um, you know, that's good. I think that the American church should give money to organizations in uh, the, the developing world, like tons of money, like all of their money. Um, you know, we, we give lots of money to the Mennonite Central Committee. That's our, our organization of choice. And that, you know, th there's all kinds of colonial problems with that. You know, there's a lot of um, country representatives from Mennonite Central Committee that are Anglo people um, in non-Anglo places. It might be more efficient to hire uh, nationals of that country to run the organization. It would actually would be more efficient. But one of the things one of the things we're dedicated to in Mennonite Central Committee, and this is why I'm so glad that we are, is we are committed to that relationship. We're trying to build a web of relationships. We're trying, yeah, we're, we want the country representative to kind of take their whole church down there with them, you know, and be sent and then come back and create this uh, this web of caring and actual relationships. No way are we going to cut off funding to Mennonite Central Committee because my grandma, you know, grew up at the, uh, you know, the border or something like that, doing doing stuff. Or like my my friend was there and he knows how it's impacting those kids' lives. You know, it's like it, it has this kind of impact. But there's certainly problems. It's super problematic. One thing I think that we ought to do as North American Christians, uh, fairly affluent ones, I would, I would say, it, but we, we, I think we ought to um, not take so much responsibility for all of the crap in the world. Um, like, colonialism sucks, um, and we can definitely perpetuate it in explicit and implicit ways, but we didn't make it. And we are redeemed by Jesus and trying to do something. Like, if we, if we have to get it all right now, like we're never going to do anything. And we, and we do awesome stuff. Like, let's not throw a wet blanket on it because we haven't solved colonialism um, or racism. Like, yes, we're working on it. Jesus is on our team, and he's going to make everything right in the end. But uh, I went on a, a tangent on there, but I, I felt like that was good to say. I think we're running out of time. I went too long last time, so I think I should stop. 
I, all these hands are popping up, but I, and I want to keep talking. So you can ask me afterwards, I'll hang out. You can ask your cell leader. You can ask Johnny. We're having a whole season of someone asked uh, between now and then. So you can email Johnny or write a question and put it in there. Mariko, the questions that we got uh, in there. You might just want to just throw them all in there. Unless someone objects, you know, uh, go take your card from her. Um, <laughs> If you were already willing for them to be public, I, I imagine they, they could go into the box. Um, so the conversation will continue. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.